This is episode number 31 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Tonight, we've got four topics to talk about. We're going to be covering a wide array of bases. We're going to be starting off with email marketing tips, some good things about send times, uh, both times and days, and subject lines, some interesting things on character lengths. Let's get your emails converting even better. So that's, yeah. our, that's our goal tonight. Absolutely. Next topic on the list is where to get test ideas. So last week we covered some interesting things on how to test without your IT team. And now we're going to be talking about how you can actually come up with some test ideas. Next up, we're going to explore the crazy world of usability and what are some basics that a lot of people either forget about, don't know, or just don't even do. Wrapping it up, is there a place where you can go too far with personalization? And that's all we're going to say. So you'll stick around to see what we actually mean. You always have one of those sneaky ones on the end there. Sticky <laughs> ninja men. So before we get started, though, this is the Beard Marketers. And this is where we do talk about what we're drinking tonight. So, Rob, what is in your cup? I, I might be getting this name wrong, but I believe it's called a Cuba Libre. Are you doing the same thing tonight? I am. Okay. We're in Florida, and it's Cuban, so we don't, aren't doing it wrong. We're doing it so-so right. <laughs> I, I'm just not really sure if the name is right. but Well, you can just say it very quickly, like Cuba Libre, and then people <laughs> go, oh, yeah, that sounds good. I like the accent. All right, so <laughs> uh, how we're making these, I'm not really sure the exact uh, percentages for the ingredients. Just some Coke Zero, some white rum. Mm. And a little bit of lime juice. It's actually surprisingly different than what I would expect from it. I don't know. Yes. What do you think? Very smooth. Yeah. Trying to enjoy summer as much as possible as it is still very hot, but it's starting to cool down here in Florida. Absolutely. So before we get into some of the topics, we are a weekly podcast. We drop new episodes every Monday. You can call, text, leave a voicemail anytime, 904-270-9603. And of course, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and LinkedIn, I think is the other one. Also, check us out on the website, thebeardofmarketers.com slash podcast is where you can listen to it. We also have a lot of other things up on the website. Oh, yeah, videos of sites that we review. Recommend that you check those out. That's at the tune-up section of our website. We take everyday websites, and we get our construction helmets on, and we go to town on some of these yep. websites and take the concepts that we discuss here on the podcast, but show them in a much more visually oriented way that can really help communicate the ideas Rob also puts together these excellent research topics on the site in our customer insights section. So take a look there. Some really good insights that he generates and can really help get your learn on. So enough of the babbling. Let's go ahead and get started. This people's <laughs> time is precious, so we want to honor that. So Absolutely. email marketing tips, kick us off. All right. So this is a study I found online, actually pulled from some various resources. So we're going to talk about some of the send time statistics and some interesting things about subject lines. So first up... This is about actual time of day when you send your email. So I think in general, most most marketing emails tend to be sent early in the morning. I don't know if that seems, from what you've seen, it seems like 10 a.m., something like that. Mm -hmm. It seems to be when most emails come through for right that. Right when I have the least amount of time, because that's where it wants to have a meeting. Exactly. So these numbers actually sort of speak to that. So sending any time outside of 8 p.m. to midnight, which is the one that had the highest performance, gives you roughly a 17% open rate. Mm -hmm. and a 2% click rate. So that's, and it's actually surprisingly even across all the different time frames. We're talking about okay. four-hour windows here. Uh, for 8 p.m. though to midnight, you get a 21% open rate. So that is a four percentage point Absolute. increase. Mm -hmm. And 4% click-through rate. Wow, so, so double. So those are some pretty impressive things. And I wonder if that's just simply because 
no one really gets promotional emails after eight o'clock at night. Yeah, you've snuggled up into your sheets. You're eating your milk and cookies, trying to get your <laughs> sleep on. And in comes this perfectly timed promotional email that you are right in the correct mindset to read. I, what's interesting, and I feel like email studies sometimes don't wrap in very well, is what is email performance and the website performance as well, coupled with that. So even though at these certain times we are seeing more engagement, does that mean that we assume that conversion rates are the same in the long term of the visit? So for example, let's say I sell Woolly Mammoth t-shirts. I'm the Woolly Mammoth t-shirt company, and I send out my very hilarious emails at 8 p.m. versus let's say three o'clock in the afternoon. And while the 8 p.m. email might get opened more or viewed or even clicked through, do people have the same propensity to buy my awesomely furry woolly mammoth t-shirts from those emails? Or is there something to be said for the customer's timing does lend itself to have some different consumption characteristics right. um, so, that need to be keep, kept right. in Right, so while well. your open rate might actually be lower with the 3 p.m., you may actually get more sales out of right. it just because of the conversion rate ultimately. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm in bed with my milk and cookies, and I don't want to get up to get my wallet, my credit card. You know, I'm really it's, comfortable right it's now. It's already saved in my Amazon account <laughs> when I get that Amazon email. <laughs> what I would recommend to a lot of marketers is when you're reading these email studies to Obviously, test it yourself, but when you're doing email testing, look at things like that. I mean, there are clicks, opens, and things like that, but you can't really divorce your emails from what the end goal is and taking a look at the fuller picture. So, Right, so let's also talk about days. So this is weekdays versus weekend sends. 2.5% click-through rate on a weekday versus a 3% click-through rate on a weekend. So marginal increase there. I mean, could make the difference for a huge campaign. 16.5% open rate on a weekday, 18% open rate on a weekend. So again, steadily increase in both clicks and opens across the board. But I think some of what you're saying there might apply as well in terms of, yeah, I might be getting more opens and clicks, but maybe there's a reason why everyone sends promotional emails at 10 a.m. Maybe they don't get the most opens and clicks, but they get the most sales. I definitely have seen direct evidence, at least the partners that I work with, that Weekend traffic can oftentimes be much more browse-oriented than ready to convert. And it might be just with the verticals that they work within, but there is something to be said for, again, keeping track of what is the long-term goal that we're trying to achieve. And while emails might garner more attention, does that actually mean that we're meeting our goals at the same rate and keeping those in mind? And I wouldn't assume that just because everyone else sends their emails out at a similar time that that is necessarily the case. People are converting more. I think a lot of times people in our industry just mimic each other and they don't even know why they're doing it, but everyone else is doing it. So we got to do it too. But just keep that in mind that you might find certain windows like sending emails at night or over the weekend that garner more attention, opens, clicks, things like that. But are people still completing the end goals that we want them to? So before we get onto the next topic, really quickly here about subject lines, character lengths. So 49 characters and less equals more opens. So shorter gets more opens. Greater than 70 characters, though, gets you actually more engagement and fewer opens. Which makes sense, I think, mm-hmm. if you think about it, obviously. A short, kind of prep them more for short, the message. Yeah, short something that's going to pique my curiosity is going to get me to open it, but maybe not engage more. And those longer ones, if I do open it, I'm going to engage. So well, It might be interesting, too, I wonder, of looking at those rates 
and device most often used to open said emails. And I wonder if we see some core or you know some divergence in the data there that might be worth taking a look at. I know obviously we it wasn't in this study, but I think that would be kind of our my next course of action as well yeah. as does device type have a big thing to do with that as well. All right, moving on, where to get test ideas. So last week, as Rob mentioned, we went over some ways that you can use testing tools to forego the dreaded, I think I called them the Mountain Dew crowd last week, which is our <laughs> yeah. IT team. And we kind of got into the different types of testing tools as well. So we got some feedback that testing tools, that's great. But now that I have these shiny new cars or these new tools, how do we use them? How, how do I get testing ideas? A couple areas that I would recommend you to start with is number one, if you haven't dedicated a lot of time or it's messy where you're not very confident in it, look at your analytics tools, clean that up, pay someone if you don't have the capacity to do it, to clean it up for you, get something that's workable. But start looking in your analytics tools and understand, number one, where people are coming into your site, but then also what pages are struggling. Where are you seeing that people are exiting a lot and where people are bouncing out from? Look at your landing pages and kind of break it down by some of these engagement metrics. Now you need to kind of understand what these pages are doing because there might be a reason why it has a high bounce rate or a high exit rate. A lot of people freak out with blog posts because they have a high bounce rate. Well, that's kind of how people digest blogs. So you kind of need to understand what you're looking at. But those are some good starting places on looking on where to test. Or in particular, if you have a funnel on your site, set up some goals in Google Analytics or whatever your metric platform might be and look at where the fall off is. And that might be a, a great place for you to test and try to recuperate some of the people that are dropping out. But also, if you do see people dropping out out of a funnel at a certain place, I always recommend people take one to two steps back because a lot of times what I find in testing, many times people drop out of a funnel, not necessarily that particular page is very bad, but you've had a comedy of errors that have led up to that page and that was kind of the final straw. So don't get hyper-focused on just the page that performs really poorly out of maybe like a checkout process or if you have like a free trial demo. But if you do have a poor performing part of your website, maybe back up a couple of steps. See what pages led people to get there and then maybe look at what's going on there as well. Right. I think a good point to add there is that, you know, oftentimes people who maybe don't have a lot of experience in the industry and, and don't keep up with benchmark reports and what everybody else is doing, maybe don't That's know. That's why we're here. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's why you listen to the Bureau of Marketers every week. Maybe don't know, you know, how to look at their stats and understand, okay, maybe this actually is a poor performing page and, and how do I compare that? And so unfortunately that a lot of that comes with experience, but also you can keep up with the industry and, and understand sort of industry basics for like, you know, a free sign up landing page should convert roughly at a X percent. You know, an e-commerce checkout path from cart to checkout should roughly perform at this kind of percent. And using some of those numbers can help you get an idea of, wow, well, your path only converts at 0.5% and everybody else is doing 5%. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, obviously that's something you need to look at. So, you know, looking for those benchmark reports, marketingsherpa.com has a lot of benchmark reports you can look into. I would also say that when you're looking in your analytics platforms, take a look at how many people this is impacting. A lot of times I think people identify some poor performing parts of their site and they start focusing a lot of time and effort. But sometimes I get in these consulting arrangements and go, yeah, but that is like 1% of your traffic. Right. And we have issues that might not be as egregious, but 
the amount of people it affects is many times more. And even if we just lift this 5% versus 100 of the other to our bottom line, it makes a much bigger impact. Absolutely. So when you're looking at issues, spots in your site, try to keep a, an idea of how much of my business is being affected and try to prioritize your things that way. The next place that you can look to to get testing ideas would be survey tools. So if you don't use these on your site, it might be a good tool for you to kind of explore or look at. There's some interesting tools out there like Qualaroo. It used to be Kiss Insights. Uh, and tools like that where you're engaging users to answer some questions about a particular page or something about your brand. But it can be great tools to kind of ask people to share their ideas with you and garner some testing ideas. Kind of along those same lines as I would classify usability studies in there as well, where you can sign up with companies like usertesting.com and get real people that would potentially come and visit your site to give honest feedback about your process. And what I find a lot of times when you use usability studies, that's a lot of uses, um, <laughs> is you get so ingrained with your website because you use it day in and day out. You understand the process. You understand the product. You understand your value proposition, even though you might not communicate it well. But when you interact with kind of the Joe Schmo crowd, sometimes it's very enlightening to show you of things that you would have never thought are a big hang up or very vague or critical to understanding your process. But some of these tools can really help you garner kind of an outsider's view into your site, kind of help you maybe demystify why something's not working very well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even outside of testing ideas from some of these things, you can find out that some things actually just don't work at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can see that with app reviews and like the iOS app store, you can see, oh, they just rolled out a review. There's 10 negative reviews. This doesn't work at all. <laughs> you know, so for them, you know, user feedback, let them know that, you know, certain features just don't work as planned at all. And you right. may find that just, you know, trying to get user feedback that, hey, this one little feature that no one on your team really tested doesn't actually work at all. And mm -hmm. it's kind of vital for some people. Well, that and it's kind of bringing down the whole experience as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of to wrap this up with some other things to think about and maybe ones that a lot of people in our space don't really tend to think about is interfacing with either your sales team or customer service. You know, these are people that sometimes interact with customers in a different level than us marketers do. A lot of times our time is spent in either doing analytics dives, we get in these strategy meetings, we meet with designers, we meet with developers, or we go to these conferences or we read benchmark reports. Or we listen to the Beard of Marketers. Or, don't forget uh, that. Obviously, we wait every Monday. So antsy waiting for that <laughs> new episode release. But there are sometimes people in our organizations that interface with customers in a far different way than we do. And sometimes it's in a capacity where people are very frustrated or what we are working for as a website has not worked for them in the case of something like customer service. And sometimes these people in sales and customer service can give you an insight into customers that can lend some great testing ideas, but also just marketing insights on what people are calling in about that are struggling with the website or struggling with our marketing message, or your salespeople might be able to give you some great competitive information that you want to wrap into your marketing messages. Like these people are calling in about our process. And this is the one thing that they all mention about our competitors that they ask us if we have, but we don't talk about well on the website. So we need to include that in our marketing plan. So if you're thinking about testing ideas, consult the following sources. 
One, your analytics. If it's not up to par, first fix it, then second, look at it. Along those lines, maybe consult some heat mapping or click mapping on your site. You can even go to the pass of some recorded tools like Clicktail. Those can be beneficial. Watch your time spent on those though. Look at user engagement items like user testing panel reviews or survey tools like Qualaroo. And then lastly, engage the members of your organization that might interface with customers such as sales or customer service. Lumping all those things together, I think you will find a treasure trove of testing ideas, but make sure that you go down that path and I think that you'll have a a roadmap for many tests. Those are my five quick tips on how you can generate more tests than you probably even know what to deal with. (laughs) So moving right along, some basics on usability. Rob, Professor Rob, why don't you educate us on some of the basics? Yeah, absolutely. So I found a good resource online, goodui.org. has a list, I think roughly it's about 30... 30 bullet points right now. A lot of them are really, like I said, basics of usability. But I think oftentimes guys like, you know, you or I, Corey, like who are in this all the time, always testing landing pages, sort of stay away from the basics. We think we know the basics, right? I think it's a good refresher to oftentimes read these lists. And I think you sometimes get reminded of things that you sort of knew, but maybe you had forgotten Mm -hmm. or hadn't applied in a while or, oh, wow, like I just did a landing page that made that mistake or... I think you can get a I lot of... I would never admit that, but yeah, right. I know what you're I, talking I wouldn't about. tell anyone, but in my mind, I would say that. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, point obviously point that out. I think it's a good resource. Again, goodui.org. Everyone should check it out. But After here's, this episode. Yeah, obviously. That's a given. So here's a few good points I pulled from it that I think are a little interesting. Tip number 15 on the site is suggest continuity instead of false bottoms, which is a little cryptic, uh, just taking it face value. But what it's trying to get at is, and I think you see this a lot with new designs, is Large headers on landing pages, huge headlines and fonts and things like that can oftentimes, depending on how they look on a device, give the impression that that's all that's on the landing page. If the cutoff is right at the bottom of a user screen of a certain piece of content block, it can seem like that's all that's there. The idea here is to make sure that you don't end up with elements like that. There's only just like a top banner that seems as if that's all that's on the landing page. You want to make sure that people get the impression that they do need to scroll down the page for more content. So that's an interesting thing. Again, it's like a new design concept that you see taking off. Yeah, and something to also consider, you know, I think a lot of people might tend to remedy that with making sure their content is always visible. But the usability rule that you can violate then is you're not using enough white space and your page is overwhelming. So it it does take a little bit of intelligence on how we need to smartly lay out our pages. And like you said, not give the appearance of cutting off our page content earlier than we mean to, but also not overcrowding it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so tip number 21, and this is maybe not going to apply to a lot of people, but certainly people who have app backends, dashboards, user interfaces where people interact with your website in a more dynamic way. This tip is use transitions to aid in comprehension. So basically what they're getting at there is, you know, everyone's familiar with fade-ins, slides, especially on their phones, right? I mean, the iPhone, Android phones use transitions a lot Mm -hmm. to help people understand exactly what's going on. When you press something, it fades or it slides in a slow motion so you understand what that action is making happen, right? Because if you use instant transitions sometimes, people may blink and completely miss what's actually happening or may not make the connection between what they just did is what's making that change happen. 
Um, so I think oftentimes transitions are seen as just something by a lot of users as, okay, well, that's, you know, we, we'll do that because it'll make it look pretty. But if we don't have time, you know, we won't bother with a lot of transitions and fancy things like that. But I think what's missed is those things are important to help people understand what exactly they're doing when they're making changes with your web applications. I think that also sometimes it buys us some time. We live in an impatient world. In one of your examples, we talked about loading screens or like when I click something that we're trying to show that the site's actually doing something. And watching people in usability labs, I find that a lot of people get frustrated if they don't see any movement and they expect there to be. And so sometimes when we forgo transitions, I think that we can cause people to become frustrated quicker than maybe they would be if they saw that there were some progress going on. You know, we we often read studies about people that will bounce out of a video loading at X amount of time. And I think sometimes that is because they don't see any progress. But sometimes if we use transitions correctly, I think that we can communicate better to users that, you know, our site is working and it's doing something. So get ready. Hold that's, on to your britches. That's actually a really good example. I don't know why I didn't think about that, but we use that on a lot. That's of why we're a team, Robert. The sites that I manage. So <laughs> that's obviously that's a really great example. So the last one I'm going to talk about, again, goodui.org. Tip number 28, smart defaults as form it puts. And so we were sort of talking about this and I know you see it a lot in some I don't know if anyone else out there joins webinars a lot, but go to meetings of the world, a lot of the exact targets, the HubSpots, all of those sort of marketing automation platforms aid in this. Essentially, if someone's already filled out a form on your site, the next time they come back and see a different form for maybe downloading a different white paper or signing up for a webinar or whatever it is, it's already pre-popped with all the information that they've given you before in the past. So that's one example of that. And obviously... Well, maybe not obviously, but for me at least, it definitely increases conversion rate. If my stuff's already filled out and it's oh, right why not? because I you know, obviously gave it to you before, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm definitely clicking that sign up button or the download button or whatever it is. I think there are other examples, though, that you could use this for. So, um, for example, filling out an address form, if you fill out a street address that maybe is unique and maybe you can pull, you know, by using a street address, you can find out what city and state it's located in and mm-hmm. the zip code for it, too. Obviously, that helps people. I mean, in some scenarios, that may not work very gracefully, and you have to be careful, and maybe it definitely warrants testing. But it's things like that that help the process, which can sometimes be complicated and annoying for people, filling out billing information and right. sign-up forms. and I mean, Especially, it, like, on something like a mobile device. I'm yeah. going to click in there with my fat thumbs and type, the, oh, I made a mistake. i got to clear the whole form. Yeah. And one of the companies I work for does a huge amount of e-commerce sales, And amazing to me that we don't even do simple things like when we ask for a zip code, pre-populate your city and state as a result. It's those small little things where the technology is here and been here for a long time and easily implementable. But so many sites don't even think about how we can really smartly interact with forms and help people save time. And I think that the people that really pioneered that was probably Amazon with their save information and one-click shopping. And oddly enough, I learned this this week. Did you know that Amazon actually has a patent on that? And that's why you don't actually see it on a lot of sites because they're very fierce about enforcing that patent. Wow. So thinking about how do we help people save time in our forever busy world, especially when we're considering other devices and how can we smartly create forms? You know, one thing while we're speaking about usability and forms, I would be remiss if I didn't say, everyone listen up. (laughs) When you are designing a form, really sit down, think hard about how you do error handling. 
because so many sites are so terrible at when you submit a form and you've made a mistake, what do I need to fix? You know, don't take me to the top of the form, number one, and clear everything, because I'm definitely not going to buy it. Number two, don't tell me the things I need to fix at the top of the form. Then I need to go and where is Waldo throughout the form and try to figure out what form you're actually, or what field you're actually telling about. So, you know, not only do we need to have smart defaults with our form fields and how we better use those, but also error handling. I cannot emphasize enough is a ux point that's an interesting point i actually am pretty flawless when i fill out online forms i don't (laughs) oftentimes see errors but the one time i always see an error is for a password field i don't understand why web developers have to make this process so complicated and why every website chooses to allow different characters and different lengths and all of these random things. I'm trying to fool the Russian hackers. Uh, I'm not going to read your paragraph about what characters are allowed and how long I'm allowed to use a password. I'm just going to start guessing at, will this one work? Will this one work? Will okay, this well, one I'm work? going somewhere else. Right, and then I've forgotten my password, so <laughs> then I have to use the forgot password thing. So that's just the sort of, if you have a password account creation thing in your process, come on, make it easy to use. We don't need all this. Also, one last thing about forms. Don't disable autofill come on what is that anyway i ain't got no we got got no time for that (laughs) all right all right so moving on if you're not scared of filling out forms and designing (laughs) them now you should be moving right along to our last topic we won't spend too much time on this but personalization too far so read an interesting blog topic this week from one of the professors at the wharton school of business and he specializes in customer insights there online and one of the concepts that he talked about was this concerning drive to him of everyone wanting to do this one-to-one marketing or you know this drive of marketers to essentially market to everyone individually to get super personal and what he said really worried him is number one he doesn't think and i would agree with him that that is achievable that people are too fickle Their minds are always changing. We live in a very dynamic world to where you can't really essentially get a awesome read on someone very well. But even his greater point that he made, which I thought was key, is in the effort to go down this path of essentially marketing to one, you know, to market to Corey, to market to Rob uniquely, the time that it takes to set up a process and to test and iterate and eventually get to the process where it is somewhat working, you have essentially gained something in your business that has cost you too much time and effort to really realize the results, that it's actually worth that. So what he argued was your time is probably better spent instead of really investing a ton of time and effort to trying to set up all these rules and segmentations and personalizations to create these all these unique experiences to take a step back. What are some segments that we can create where our buckets are big enough that number one, we can manage correctly? Because as you get more and more complex, you're also setting yourself up for more failure points. You know, oh crap, we didn't even update the creative in that. So now we're showing a homepage to some people that's actually four months old. We have so much going on that we totally forgot about it. So number one, we've created this monstrosity that we can't keep up. But number two, we've created something that, again, we've spent so much time in that we're going after such small percentage point gain that our time is better spent somewhere else. Like, yes, we might have eked out 
a 0.2% gain, which for some sites might be a large amount of money. But the time that it took me to extract that, I could have spent maybe investing in a better rewards program or developing a automatic review mechanism to spread my reputation better online and resulting in 10% more traffic and things like that. So we're going to tweet out the link. It's a it's an interesting read by this professor at the Wharton School, and I think that he does kind of hit the nail on the head that a lot of us kind of fall into the trap of as technology has grown and there is a promise of marketing to everyone uniquely, we need to maybe take a step back and say, do we need to? You know, is it worth the time? Is it worth the effort? And can we, number one, even do it well? Yeah. Uh, no matter how good the technology gets, are people basically too fickle to do that well? Well, I, I think that's sort of my key takeaway from that is, is doing it well. And, you know, as much as I love Amazon, you know, a lot of their marketing is based on personalization mm-hmm. and things you've looked at before and things you, people who bought this also bought this and a lot of that stuff. And I just see it and I just, I gloss over it at this mm-hmm. point because it, it's none of it's actually that relevant. And I'm not really sure if it's just because I would assume Amazon is investing a lot of time and resources into making sure that these things are are actually good processes. But so I don't know if it's a matter of just we as a marketing culture haven't gotten good at making those processes and how do we customize things to people? Or if it's because, like you said, that people are just so fickle. Yeah, I was into that like yesterday, but today's today and I don't care about that anymore. So I think maybe just the combination of those two things is you're actually... You think you're being slick with your personalization, but you're actually not. And it's actually kind of turning me off because you think... You know who you're talking to, but no, that's not. I don't care about that. That was me so last month. Come on, get Exactly. Get with my level. All right. So keep that in mind. I think we covered a wide swath of topics tonight. Give us some feedback. As Rob mentioned, we have a toll-free hotline of goodness. It's not (laughs) toll-free. Oh, it's not (laughs) toll-free. Well, if you live in the U.S., you should have free long distance anyway. So it's 904-270-9603. If you're not in the U.S. and you don't want to pay for extra minutes, you can drop us a line at thebeardmarketers.com. Also, check out our videos, Rob's excellent customer insights that he puts out there. A lot of good content on the site, so check that out. Give us a call on anything that you might be struggling with. It's your boss yelling at you. You just don't even know where to start. Give us a call. Between Rob and I, you probably have some experience or we know some people that can point you in the right direction. But that's going to be it for us. This has been episode number 31. This is Rob and Corey, and we will see you next week.